0: Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to John verses 1 through 9. And this is John's version of the uh, finding of the empty tomb of the resurrection of the Lord. And there's there's some preliminary things that we ought to really be able to process before we move into this particular gospel. And that is that we have to be reminded constantly because of our own modern mindsets that what happens in the Gospels is not you know a kind of a stenographic uh, reproduction of the of how it how things actually were. They, they are memories of realities that are true but that have also been used as matters of instruction and teaching. And uh, what the what the authors were concerned about, and, and this is true in much of the scripture, what they are concerned about is what is, what is the faith of the people? How do they communicate faith to the people? And, and they don't make up historical fact to do that, but at the same time, they're, very, they're not careful at all of historical fact. And so there's just kind of a general sense of the things that happen, and then a variety of perspectives as to how those are remembered and how those have been communicated. I think, you know, um, that there is a tendency to say, well, you know, they're not newspaper stories. But if you want to get into um, a uh, situation where people are not really concerned about the facts, but simply want to communicate their, their ideology. All we have to do is, is read the modern press and listen to the modern media. That uh, this false notion of objectivity that uh, many people will use to critique the Gospels is something that they, they don't hold modern media to at all. And uh, while the gospel is intent on preserving the essence of the truth, of the facts, sometimes modern media is much more creative than that. So we don't want to become, come into this and say, well, I can't accept the scriptures or I can't accept the gospels because after all, they don't agree with each other. And that into ideologically then, you know, we can we can move into the Gospels and try and employ a false sense of history in order to create an ideological resolution from the text that we find. The important thing in the Gospel of John is that the tomb is empty. And, you know, there is in none of the Gospels is there any kind of explanation of the physical phenomenon of the resurrection. No one has, no one witnessed it, and therefore no one is there to say that this is, you know, it happened this way or that way. And so the empty tune then becomes kind of a segue into trying to grasp and to understand what the resurrection is and what it means in our world and in our lives. We know for instance, that there was a great deal of skepticism, and since the Gospels do not explain or describe the resurrection, there was a period of time 40 or 50 years ago when it became very much kind of, you know, chic to, uh, to deny the empty tomb or to um, use the empty tomb as an example to say, well, you know, we have no idea what the resurrection was. And then there was a tendency to say, "Well, you know, it was just kind of a spiritual resurrection; the uh, the 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 dead body was still in the tomb, and so forth." None of that is in conformity with the eyewitnesses of the age, and none of that is in conformity with the charisma, with the proclamation that comes out of this this experience of the resurrection. There is another thing, too, of great argument over, all right, who was the primary witness um, to the resurrection? And, you know, we find a variety of possibilities in in the scriptures. It's interesting for us, however, to turn to St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's 3 to 9, in which the primary witness is listed as Peter, um, we find in the gospel today a reaffirmation of the, uh, of the Petrine primacy as far as the witness to the resurrection is concerned. There is, there is a difference between seeing something and understanding what something is, that the, whoever may have been the first witness to the empty tomb, whether Mary Magdalene in John's gospel, whether it's the women in Luke's gospel, whatever it is, um, that, that that's different than witnessing to the resurrection, because the resurrection demands we witness in faith. And that's why it's important in the gospel today that John says he went in and believed. Um, and while, why Paul says you know, that he appeared first to Peter. Um, and, and I think that, uh, that we, we find that it's part of the whole story of the Petrine primacy and the Resurrection, the witness to the Resurrection becomes very crucial to that. If we can, if we can play history games with, with the texts, you know, then we can undermine the Papacy if we, if we want to. And, uh, but that's not the intention of the Scriptures. The intention of the Scriptures is to very firmly, very firmly um, proclaim that the primary witness not to the empty tomb but to the resurrection is Peter and it is the petrine primacy of witness along with the giving of the keys that establishes Peter as the first among equals as the primary as the primacy as basically the one whom we call the pope the bishop of Rome so let's look at the text now with some of this background information, with some of this background perspective. Let's look at the text and see exactly what it is saying for, to us. It begins, it was very early on the first day of the week and still dark when Mary of Magdala came to the tomb. She saw that the stone had been moved away from the tomb and came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, she said, and we don't know where they have put him. Mary Magdalene in John's Gospel then is the first one to witness to the empty tomb. She is not the first one to witness to the resurrection. And so Peter set out with the other, because the witness to the resurrection is the witness of belief, the witness of faith. So Peter set out with the other disciples to go to the tomb and they ran together but the other disciple running faster than Peter reached the tomb first. He bent down and saw the linen claws lying on the ground but he did not go in. So the other disciple obviously is John. This is John's gospel. He's telling his story and he's telling what he recalls of his story. He knows that Mary Magdalene has found that the tomb is empty. The stone is, is rolled away and there's nothing in there. And she runs and tell Peter, tells Peter and the, and the others, they've stolen the body. And, uh, and we, we don't know what they've done with it. And so Peter and John run to see what happened. When they get there, and this is important, John does not go in first. Once again, he allows Peter to go in first. Part of the Johannine structure of the primacy of Peter. And so he says, you know, that Peter goes in, and then John goes in, and he sees, and, and he believes. What they have seen, they, they saw the linen cloths lying on the ground, and uh, they, they saw also... The, the, uh, the one that had covered his head was, was rolled up in a place by itself. And so what they saw, remember in the rising of Lazarus, which happened very, very uh, near in time to the passion of the Lord, that uh, this was the sign of Lazarus having risen from the dead was when jesus says take off the bindings take off the clothes uncover his head and so forth so that same kind of of uh, of witness that same kind of proof shows up now in john's gospel as they find the bindings and the headcloth rolled up and separate neatly in a way not just scattered around but rolled up and placed in a particular place it is, therefore, taking from the imagery of the raising of Lazarus, it is very powerfully part of the image of the raising of the Lord, that it, he has come to life. Now, what about, you know, what, what about the, the arguments, well, you know, it was a spiritual resurrection, it wasn't the body, and so forth. You know, in all of human history, our personhood is tied up with, our physicality, our body. Um, The fact that you can bifurcate a person in this world um, and separate body from soul and have the whole person in the soul, not possible. That as a matter of fact, if they see Jesus, they see Jesus in the flesh. They see Jesus bodily. And Jesus in the post-resurrection stories is very adamant that they come to terms with that. When he says in Luke's gospel, I am not a ghost. When he says in John's gospel, put your hands in my side and your fingers in my hands, you know, um, and and give me something to eat. The whole physicality of the risen Lord is emphasized from the moment of the resurrection when in fact, when in fact the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, cloths are found, the tomb is empty, and Jesus later appears on the same day he appears to the disciples. So, so we, we, we are dealing now with the resurrection of, of Jesus of Nazareth. And that doesn't mean that he's bifurcated, that doesn't mean he's split between, you know, between between his body and his spirit. He as a person has risen from the dead. We don't know how that happened, we don't know what that looked like. Um, We have a, a preview of it in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, when Lazarus walks out of the tomb. Um, when the stone is pushed back and Lazarus walks out of the tomb and Jesus says, unwrap him. We have that image, and we have that image, therefore, also in the resurrection of Jesus. He walks out of the tomb and he is unwrapped, and his wrappings are not like shattered through some kind of chaotic theft of the body, but very neatly taken care of, rolled up and put in a particular place inside the tomb. And so it said, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, then he went in and he saw and he believed. Until this moment, they had failed to understand the teaching of Scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so they themselves were not sure what it meant that someone would rise from the dead. They themselves were unclear about what that might mean. They certainly got a striking preview in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so they were were prepared with a very human type of preparation for what they were to encounter in the risen Lord. But there's a difference, there's a thematic difference in it. In one, Jesus is the one who raises Lazarus, and in the gospels of the resurrection we have no idea how this happens we do run into and god raised him from the dead or we have jesus raised from the dead and so did he did he rise up under his own power as god did the father therefore you know um, re- reconnect with him in 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 the tomb and and share his life with him, you know. There's there's a there's a big discussion about the death of the Lord, and 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 it's fair. It's a fairly interesting and a fairly important one. Once again, you know, there's no clear historical definition of it, but um, but if Jesus is to experience death with us, which is what he was supposed to do, then. It's very hard, a, and I know there's a strong tradition on the, on the harrowing of hell, when you know, Jesus says, the man dies on the cross, and Jesus as God goes down and liberates the people in hell. Um, but there are theologians who have a problem with that perspective, and say, you know, death had to be total, and yet you can't say that the divine died. And, and so uh, one of the theologians, Hans Urs von Balthasar, um begins to discuss the whole issue. If God were if if God were to experience death with us and yet at the same time not die, what would be, what would that look like theologically? How could we come to understand that? And von Baltisser goes back to Jesus as the word. And so what he speaks about, reflects upon, it's not, it's not dogma, you can't say, well, this is exactly the way it happened. But it, it's a worthwhile reflection and it's a worthwhile meditation during, during the triduum and during the time of the passion of the Lord and his death because what von Balthasar says is the word became silent and that's a powerful powerful statement because the word is of itself the the voice of the divine the word is of itself the communicative principle of the divine if the divine is no longer communicating with the earth if the divine is no longer communicating with creation then creation sinks back into chaos in a biblical sense creation then sinks back into destruction and darkness. So what von Valtasar reflects upon is that as Jesus dies on the cross, that while the man Jesus dies, the word, who is Jesus, falls silent. The communication, therefore, between the divine and the created order ceases and chaos ensues. Well, how do we, why would they be, why would he be able to say this? Because what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? The sun is dark and there are winds, the temple curtain is torn into. the tombs of the dead are opened. In other words, the images of chaos are what the Gospels give us when the word falls silent. Von Balthasar then, of course, asks the question, if in fact, the communication between the, between the divine and the created order ceases, and the, only in that communicative principle is creation sustained, then how does creation, so while sinking back into chaos, how does it keep from simply disappearing? And from Balthazar speculates once again of John and Mary at the foot of the cross. John, the priest, Mary, the church. It is through the power of the priesthood and the power of the church that chaos is held at a bay until the Lord can rise from the dead. Reestablish this communication principle and once again then very, very strongly... <coughs> Um, bring, solidify, bring the world back into into a secure existence. That's not actually in the gospel, but it is part of what we're trying to look at here. How do we explain then the death of the Lord? How do we explain the Lord in the tomb? How do we say that the word of God somehow or other um, does not share the human experience of death. When in fact, for God, the nearest to death that God can become is for the word of God to be silent, and then silence to be alienated. Um, a- alienated from, from, the, uh, from the Father, from the source of the created order. I think there's a very, very interesting um, poem, or a poetic poem, Vision of this. And it comes from Romanus Melodus in the seventh century. He was a Syriac monk and um, he was also a musician, which is why he's called Melodus. But he tried to capture this, this, this silence of the word. And and I'll I'll just read a few lines. It said, and he he is speaking in the voice of Jesus. And he said, I descended as low as being casts its shadow. I looked into the abyss and I cried, Father, where are you? But I heard only the everlasting, ungovernable storm. And when I looked from the immeasurable world to the eye of God, it was an empty socket without function, that stared back at men, and eternity rested on chaos, gnawing at it, ruminating. So this, then, is where from Balthazar draws the notion of the silence of the word. What did he see? What did he hear? The ungovernable storm. What is the ungovernable storm? It is biblical chaos. And when, when Jesus says on the cross, he looks for the Father, and all he sees is an empty socket without foundation staring back at men. And then he said, eternity rested on the chaos. And so it's from here that from Baltazar moves then into the story of the silence of the word and into then a whole different perspective on this resurrection story in the Gospel of John. <coughs> For it, it brings us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus was integral to the person of Jesus who was both God and man. That the silence of the word is broken as the human body itself is a living being once again. And so in both elements of Jesus, in both his divine and his human nature, there is in a sense a resurrection. The humanity from the dead and the word from silence. And that makes it a total experience, and it it has also with it a profound impact on the created order. For the resurrection, then, has established, then, the total, the ultimate defeat of chaos and has reestablished the communication between God, between the divine, the creator, and the created order. So that when we go back now to the story of the resurrection, we're just not looking at a simple thing like, oh yeah, the tomb was empty and Jesus walked out. No, we're, we're talking about a cosmic event. We're talking about Jesus as, 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 as a whole, as divine and as human, reconnecting the created order with the Father and in so recreating the connect the created order with the father and through the resurrection of the body with humanity he reestablishes the order of redemption and the order of salvation for it is now through the working of the body of the lord now made come alive that he shares the destiny of human nature and he shares the communication with the Father, which is the sum and substance of the existence and the sustaining in existence of the created order of the world. So the resurrection not only promises us eternal life, but it also also brings to us a place for us to discover and to participate in grace and to move toward that eternal life and that is the earth on which we live, the physicality which we have, the physicality which we share with the Lord and therefore share the destiny of resurrection with him, but also we are then able to continue the work of the Lord, the work that he performed and the work that he did before he was crucified and rose from the dead. In other words, the ministry of Jesus continues in the world through humanity, which has now been transformed through Christ's resurrection and has an eternal and everlasting destiny. The, the, the resurrection then is not just a quibbling over who saw the empty tomb first. It was who believed what this meant first. That's the testimony. And the belief that of, who, of what was seen first seems to be, therefore, according to St. Paul and according to the Johannine structure of the Gospel, that it seems to be Peter, who therefore becomes the, the essential link the essential link between um, be- between the ongoing existence of Christ in the Church and the uh, and the hopes of humanity and the hierarchical structure of the Church, with Peter as primate, um, it seems to me then that on this feast of the Resurrection, as we look at this gospel. It's important for us to look more deeply into that empty tomb, to not just see no one there, but to see what has gone into that tomb, and then reflect again on what has come out of that tomb. For going into that tomb was the triumph of chaos. Coming out of the tomb is the redemption and the salvation of humanity. Uh, this, This gospel should move deeply into our hearts and deeply into our souls. It should be for us, therefore, a reflection, a lengthy reflection. Too often, the resurrection simply becomes a fact instead of an experience. It becomes simply a fact instead of an explanation of reality. It becomes simply a fact, and not in some way, shape, or form a personal gift to each of us. For it gives us and promises us eternal life, and it also offers to us the opportunity to participate in the grace of God to move toward that eternal life in order that we might work out our redemption along with the grace of the Lord. And through participating with him, come then more deeply into the mystery of his gift of life, his gift of redemption, and his gift of eternity. That's what the resurrection might mean for us, and perhaps in this season we might pray deeply, and we might pray seriously, asking the Lord to deepen our understanding of the faith and our understanding of this feast. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.